0: This is Rings of Hell, a 10-part podcast series dedicated to all things regarding the 2024 and 2028 Los Angeles Olympics bids. Over the course of this series, we'll have 17 special guests come into the studio or call in to discuss basically everything the anti-Olympic movement No Olympics Los Angeles, a coalition that was formed in DSA Los Angeles and now features several dozen social justice groups, including Ground Game, has been focusing on regarding the Olympic bid since they launched over a year ago. We'll tackle everything from housing to homelessness, militarization, abuse, political collusion, who the business interests are pushing the games, the lack of democracy, anti-Olympic movements abroad, the missing mayor Eric Garcetti, and so much more. We try to cover it all as we dive deep into the murky, corrupt world of Olympic politics, grift, and catastrophe, and offer a counter-narrative to the messages being pushed to you by the Olympics corporate media partners. In episode one, we cover 1984.
1: Yeah, speaking of uh, the 1984 Olympics as kind of a um, as sort of like a shining beacon of what capitalism can achieve, <laughs> uh, the, so the 1984 Olympics killed a bald eagle.
0: Episode 1, 1984, The Olympic Legacy of Denial. Hey all, welcome to the inaugural episode of Rings of Hell. I'm your host Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be examining the history of the 1984 games here in Los Angeles. Now, if you listen to the boosters of the 2028 bid, the 1984 games were very successful, economically, socially, and culturally. But we're going to dive into the actual truth behind 1984. What aren't we being told? what is the city trying to hide, and what are the connections to the 2028 bid that they don't want us to see? So today I have Anne, Caitlin, and Steve from Olympics, Los Angeles. How are you all doing today?
1: Great, thanks for having us here. Great.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> all right. So. Let's go ahead and hop into this and talk about the history of the 1984 games, what that looked like and why it's such a a happy point for Mr. Garcetti.
1: Well, first of all, I think uh, if you contextualize why the games would have been so memorable and so nostalgic for someone like Eric Garcetti or for Casey Wasserman, who is the chair uh, formerly of the 24 bid committee, now of the 28 organizing committee, uh, they they come from two of the most well-connected and privileged families in L.A. They both speak really positively of their experiences as teenagers at the 84 games. Um, Casey Wasserman ran in the torch relay uh, along with O.J. Simpson. Uh, So, you know, uh, Eric Garcetti, just for some context, his father is Gil Garcetti, who is the former D.A. of Los Angeles. Casey Wasserman is the grandson of Lou Wasserman, who was, uh, you know, quote unquote, the most feared and powerful man in Hollywood for a long time. So. They and Lou Wasserman was also very involved in the the bid and bringing the eighty four games to L A. So they were kind of like, you know, young princes of L A. Uh, they got premium seats at the games. Casey Wasserman got to run in the torch relay. None of them, n- neither of them, and and many of their friends who were involved in the bringing the bid to Los Angeles now. You know, did not experience any of the negative impacts of increased policing of displacement. All they saw was kind of the glitz and Lionel Richie at the opening, uh, you know, the opening ceremonies. And so, yeah, of course, Eric Garcetti loved the 1984 Olympics. He was, yeah, it was a dream come true for a
0: wealthy, privileged 16 year old boy. And it, it also points to the fact that, like, we keep seeing the same names popping up in this. I'm noticing a little bit of the the Los Angeles dynasty legacy uh, kind of hooking into that. Is, is that one reason why we see the press so so positive on these games?
1: I think that's probably one of the reasons and also, you know, why there are so many, uh, you know, so many of the boosters don't disclose that. That's, that's uh, very telling and interesting, and the press has also not drawn that connection out either. Um, something that has come up... Uh, You know, as we're talking about the legacy of the games, I'm sure we'll get into later the LA 84 Foundation. Um, But... Uh, another member of the bid committee and organizing committee was Paul Ziffrin, who is a really powerful attorney in Los Angeles uh, and also one of the leaders of the Democratic Party in California and kind of like the Democratic Party apparatus. Uh, and he was one of the people who pushed to bring the games to Los Angeles in 1984. His granddaughter, Laura Ziffrin, is Casey Wasserman's wife. Um, and he was the the CEO and chair of the la 84 Foundation and started that. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of dynastic connections. Laura Zifrin, too, is another one of the kind of she and Casey Wasserman were high school and childhood friends. So, yeah, their grandfathers were two very powerful figures in Hollywood and in politics and were best friends and involved in the Olympic Games. So it's, it's not really a surprise that their children and grandchildren want to continue this legacy and, and bring it back because their families profited from it in the past.
0: And what kind of myths are we seeing pushed out to perpetuate this narrative? Like, what are the, the good things about 1984 we're being told?
2: This, I think it's really seen as this joyous time that uh, L.A. was able to host the, the world. Um, there are no terrorist events. There is no traffic. Um, and was there no traffic? Well, there were there was a lot of preparation. LA was very concerned about its reputation for being a city of smog, of traffic, of crime and gang activity, um, and so there were efforts on all of those fronts to dispel that negative reputation. So in terms of traffic specifically there was a lot of effort to um, have get trucks off the road, create special lanes that would just be for buses on the freeways um, and that was that was by and large successful and so that really contributed to this, Uh, positive impression um, and narrative about the 1984 Olympics, and I think there's actually some resistance to really remembering what some of the negative aspects of the Olympics were. I mean, the other major thing to mention is the profitability of the Games. Um, It was the first privately financed Olympics, um, and it generated a $225 million surplus. Um, And they were able to do that because. Uh, the Peter Ueberroth, who was the head of the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee, sort of pioneered a new structure of corporate sponsorships. Um, each product area would have an exclusive licensing and sponsoring deal uh, so that um, each sponsor would have to pay a minimum contribution of $4 million or in-kind donations to the LA Organizing Committee. Um, In addition to the Soviet Union boycotting the games in 1984, that's why it's remembered as the sort of capitalist games. Private industry was able to pull this off. Um, Also significant was the fact that interest rates were through the roof in the late 1970s and early 1980s. So once they had this money in the bank, they were able to generate a lot of funds. Um, So it became, you know, another, I think, important part of the narrative is that it became a success story for capitalism and capitalist enterprise. Um, And that's sort of how it's remembered. Now, we can't really replicate that now because the IOC has control of all of those contracts. So that's not a thing that the city of Los Angeles can do again, but I think it was important part of that 1984 narrative.
0: Plus, the Soviets will probably show up this time, right? Yes.
3: <laughs> another thing. That, I wish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> another thing that comes up um, with regards to, you know, the profitability of the games, and you know, the it's very well known that like you know this is one of the first Olympic games, the, the first Olympic games to really like you know have these private partnerships and television contracts and things like that as a way of you know, generating revenue and financing the games. But, you know, it also needs to be, uh, um, you know, people need to remember that, you know, oftentimes and this, you know, the public gets bilked by having the Olympic Games in your city. And, you know, uh, uh, public money is exposed as part of, um, you know, bringing the games to your city. The, The IOC effectively dictates that. Public money has to be a tax It has to be a taxpayer backstop, right? In case the games go over budget, uh, and in '78 the Montreal games were a financial disaster, and so there was actually push to vote on a charter amendment uh, to the uh, LA city charter to not allow any taxpayer money to be used to cover any of the costs of the games. Um, and you know the IOC wanted it to happen really badly, but you know. L.A. 84 was in a, uh, you know, they, were, they had leverage on the IOC because they were literally the only city that was bidding for the games at this point. Uh, Tehran had had, uh, a, 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 you know, the Iranian revolution had happened and they were the other bidding city and that obviously uh, uh, caused them to withdraw. And so the United States had pitched L.A. and New York and you could only have one bid city from one country. And so they had to pick L.A. and they basically won by default. Right. So the IOC, when they said, well, well we still want this taxpayer guarantee, you know, uh, Mayor Tom Bradley just said no. And they, they they couldn't do anything about it. So, you know, that was uh, a way of preventing the public from getting you know hosed on the Olympics like they often do.
2: And it was an important part of getting the public to support it, because when this was all happening was the Taxpayer Revolt, Proposition 13, passed in 1978. People were really conscious about spending those taxpayer dollars. So um, the support for the Olympics was predicated on the idea that um, it wasn't going to cost them. I think there were a lot of costs, especially for low-income people and people of color. But um, at least on paper, it wasn't something that they were going to have to pay taxpayer dollars for.
1: Yeah, one thing I want to mention um, that I think is important to note, Caitlin mentioned a little while earlier the, the $225 million surplus, and I think that's the figure that gets kind of headlined a lot, but if you actually break it down, the majority of that, uh, you know, according to the term set by the host city contract, went to Olympic organizing body, so went right back into the IOC and the USOC. And then the remainder, which L.A. got to keep, so not the majority of that fund, went into the private L.A. 84 Foundation. So the amount that L.A. in scare quotes got to keep that didn't go into Olympic organizing bodies, I think was what was it, 80 or 90 million dollars, 93 million dollars, um, which if you put that into context, uh, the current the L.A. 24 bid cost 60 million dollars um so you know yes notable in terms of historic in that the olympics generated a surplus but like not an astronomical amount and of that 93 million dollars zero went into the city all of that went to the la84 foundation
2: and a lot of the public infrastructure um you know the rtd rapid transit district they were you know, operating at a loss during the games and actually didn't get compensated. So we have this idea that it was this privatized Olympics, um, but it was actually, you know, hugely dependent on public infrastructure, public workers, um, and that uh, surplus money didn't go back to those kinds of daily services for Angelina's.
0: I remember thinking back because I was a very, very wee lad, as it were, uh, when the, the 1984 games came. But I remember them making a big deal about bringing in an eagle. And that being big and symbolic, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember exactly the story, but that seems like a big, significant, very like hope building thing, right?
1: Yeah. Speaking of uh, the 1984 Olympics, as kind of a um, as sort of like a shining beacon of what capitalism can achieve. <laughs> uh, the, so the 1984 Olympics killed a bald eagle uh, as part of the opening ceremony. You know, the opening ceremony of the 1984 Olympics is also held up as uh, you know notable. Um, and the closing ceremony had there were performances by Elton John and Lionel Richie at the opening ceremony. You had Ronald Reagan. You had Rocket Man in a jet suit flying across the Coliseum. It was a, a true spectacle. Uh, but one of the original plans for the opening ceremony was to have a, uh, a bald eagle. Um, you know, symbol of American patriotism, fly over the Colosseum. So they brought in. uh, We didn't have
3: B2 bombers to do that at that point.
1: Yeah. Well, but we had an eagle named bomber. (laughs) An eagle named bomber was brought in from, uh, you know, from nature. And this endangered, majestic endangered species was brought in. And they were trying to train it to fly across the Coliseum. Um, the eagle that they chose, Bomber, was actually not in great health to begin with. And then as they were trying to train it to fly over the Coliseum, um, because of the combination of its sort of poor health, the amount of exertion it took to fly over the Coliseum, and the amount of smog in the air at the time, um, Bomber got very sick. And his trainers requested to the Olympic organizers that they either cancel it or that they take a break from training and that they, they flag that this eagle was in failing health. Um, the organizers insisted that the eagle keep working and keep training and it died. So, yeah, so definitely a, a beacon for what capitalism can achieve.
0: So it seems like with the comparing the popularity of these bids, you know, was the 1932 bid uh, that was successful was that popular with the people of L.A.?
1: so basically every time los angeles has hosted or won a bid for the uh the olympics um, it has been the only city bidding Um, as steve mentioned earlier in 84 la essentially won by default that was also true in 1932 Um, that bidding process was taking place at the beginning of the depression at which point Many cities recognized they could not afford to host the Olympics. Uh, I think in many cases, cities were reluctant to host and it was unpopular because people saw it as an ostentatious display of wealth at a time when people were really struggling and unnecessary expenditure. Uh, A lot of people, the folks behind the L.A. 1932 bid primarily saw it as kind of an opportunity to drive real estate speculation in Southern California, to put Los Angeles on the map, to showcase how kind of... uh, Uh, how much wealth and productivity there was in Los Angeles and to to put on this sort of Potemkin Village-style show to drive uh, California's real estate economy, essentially. That's where we got our palm trees from. That's a fun fact. I actually learned this from Caitlin, um, is that the palm trees were, were, I knew palm trees were not native to Southern California, but didn't quite know the genesis of how they came to be here and become associated. And that that was part of the theater of the 1932 Olympics, was bringing in these palm trees to have sort of an iconic landscape
2: which i haven't fact checked this but i've also heard that palm trees have a 100 year lifespan so they're all going to die off soon too yeah
0: yeah
1: just about in time for the
0: 2028 olympics
3: it, don't worry they'll they'll plant more for the yeah. 28 games <laughs> On a
0: less more level, how did the 1984 games change the face of this city? Um, you know, did Beverly Hills see a lot of upheaval? Um, what areas and neighborhoods of this city were directly affected?
2: So I think certainly the areas around the Coliseum were the target of a lot of policing, aggressive policing. Uh, There were gang and narcotic sweeps by the LAPD, um, which actually led to deportations in some cases. Um, The INS cracked down on LAX and undocumented workers there. Um, So there were deportations that resulted from that as well. Um, And the city did engage in some community outreach efforts in South Los Angeles around the the Olympics, but it was mostly to limit uh, petty, uh, you know, theft or gang activity. Um, And for the most part, there was a pervasive sense that the Olympics wasn't for them. Uh, There was one organizer who said it feels like the city is throwing a party in our backyard and we're not invited. So a lot of the venues were blocked off by barbed wire fencing, which closed off access to recreational facilities that the neighborhood was used to using. Um, And the hiring practices, actually, of the Olympics also discriminated against um, people of color. So ostensibly to prevent terrorism, the Olympic organizing committee uh, sought to gain access to LAPD records um, to do background checks for all of their hires, uh, which would show them not just convictions, but also arrest records. Um, And they were trying to use that um, to prevent, you know, anyone potentially dangerous from being hired. But what that really did, and the the ACLU uh, tried to stop this, was that it would prevent um, the people who lived in that community from actually getting the opportunity to profit from the games themselves by, um, you know, that it would have been temporary low-wage service work, but um, jobs nonetheless that they were prevented from accessing.
0: And was there any blowback that the city faced over uh, those kind of uh, practices and initiatives?
2: Yeah, so there there were a range of lawsuits um, by the ACLU. Uh, the city had also considered preventing any kind of political demonstration or parade from taking place during the 1984 games, which was a clear violation of civil liberties. And so the city council ultimately didn't do that, but there was a lot of surveillance of any kind of political organization that was trying to use the games as a platform. Um, One of the groups that I've looked at was a coalition of leftist groups called the Federation for Progress who were trying to do a massive demonstration against Reagan's intervention in Central America and the rollback of the welfare state. Um, And they had a very difficult time securing permits for their march, although they ultimately did um, gain one. They got very little media attention, though. Pretty much the LA Weekly was the only outlet that covered them at all.
1: Uh, Also, in terms of lawsuits, there was one uh, in 1984 from a number of uh, black owned businesses in L.A. who uh, I think it was a a 40 million dollar lawsuit, 44 million dollar lawsuit. So it was a 44 million dollar lawsuit against the organizing committee, uh, which these businesses won, because as Caitlin mentioned earlier, um, you know, part of part of how the you know, profits for these games were generated and how uh, these games were privately financed was in terms of very closely managing contracts and working with corporate sponsorships and commercial, commercial, you know, sponsorships, uh, but which ultimately hurt business owners, local business owners in L.A. And one of in terms of community outreach, one of the things that the bid committee had promised to local businesses was that they would benefit from the games and it would be good for them. Um, and this is something we've seen in many cities. It's just happened happened in Pyeongchang where, you know, that was in a resort town and we saw a number of local businesses essentially be driven out and go out of businesses because of all the restrictions that are placed on them and like deals that are made with these larger corporate sponsors um, to benefit deals and relationships with the IOC and Olympic organizers. And that happened in L.A. and so many, you know, black owned businesses in particular went bankrupt went out of business just like lost profits that a number of them got together and sued the la organizing committee and won but that doesn't get included in the narrative of you know the 84 olympics being profitable or making money um and yeah again thinking about who did they make money for certainly not these local business owners
3: and that line is particularly pernicious because, I mean, it's it's part of the Olympic mythology. It's always, uh, you know, part of the package that the Olympics, the IOC tries to sell to cities. And, you know, we hear it with the 2028 bid. It's that, oh, this is going to be a huge financial boon for, you know, local economies. And then, you know, to have it not just not be true, but to have it actually be bad for those businesses is just like it's the height of um, you know uh, dishonesty and 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 reckless uh, uh, propaganda um and you know it's it's incredibly frustrating because you know it is it is basically a proven myth right based on the history of the way that the games have gone and yet this still continues to be the tactic that they use when trying to sell the games to cities and it's just demonstrably false
0: And it seems like looking at the Olympics in London in 2012, we see a big expansion of the surveillance state. So surely the mom-and-pop surveillance stores, they're going to do okay. (laughs) Also, mom-and-pop police departments, I understand, do very well under Olympics regimes. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how LAPD changed in response to 84.
2: It was basically a major escalation of the militarized policing that they were already engaging in. Um, the security operation was called the largest peacetime you know, military operation in the United States. Uh, and the LAPD, after the games, inherited a lot of the sort of high-tech anti-terrorism equipment that was being used. So this included a battering ram um, that they then used in Operation Hammer to break down the doors of suspected crack houses um, in South L.A. and other parts of the city. Uh, It included machine guns, sniper rifles, um, helicopter equipment, uh, radio system for the SWAT team. Um, So basically it was a a massive uh, transfusion of funds to the LAPD in ways that had lasting consequences um, for the city. I think it was the security operation was the biggest uh, line item in the Olympic budget.
0: And, and from what I hear, they also brought in trainers from uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and began more concretely training these sort of paramilitary tactics.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Daryl Gates, who was the police chief at the time and who L.A.
0: natives or even people who I think were alive during the 80s. And- oh, he's he's world famous. Influence. Yeah. Like, you can go anywhere. Like, I've been to Ireland and mentioned L.A. and people are like, oh, Daryl Gates, he's terrible. And yeah. it's like, that was decades ago, but thank you.
1: Yeah. So Daryl Gates, basically notorious uh, racist monster. Um, who infamously said that uh, police weren't responsible for killing, um, you know, the black men that they that they murdered, um, you know, using chokeholds because uh, that uh, the, what he said something like their veins or their arteries aren't like normal people's.
0: Oh yeah, no, Daryl Gates had some really uh, scary things to say about the chokehold and it had some really like racist beliefs. I dug this out of the archives. It's from a 1982 interview that the L.A. Times did with Chief Gates at the time. And uh, yeah, it's scary. I'm just gonna let his words speak for themselves. Quote, we may be finding that in some blacks, when it, he means the chokehold, is applied, the veins and arteries do not open as fast as they do in normal people. So yeah, Daryl Gates saying black people are not normal people. He's a trip. Yeah, it's
1: not police's fault. It's, yeah, so he's horrifying. He's a, a terrible, terrible monster. Um, and you know, our claim is not that the Olympics turned him into a monster, but they certainly gave him the opportunity and the leverage and kind of carte blanche. And and as Caitlin mentioned, this huge line item in this massive budget uh, to essentially to do things like to purchase this equipment, to send uh, to send SWAT teams to Israel and to Germany to get special training you know, like riot police training and surveillance training, uh, which, again, once the games are over, they still have that training, they still have that equipment, and it's that's used against residents of the city.
3: And it's sold, and again, it's this false bill of goods, right, it's sold to us as this necessary thing that has to happen because the games are a target, right, because outside actors are going to, you know, threaten peacetime or whatever, but, you know, and then again, we see how these, you know, once these tools get into the hands of the state, they're, they're just turned around on the communities that they're supposed to protect um, i also want to flag that uh daryl gates is uh responsible for what is quite possibly one of the most ridiculous video games of all time uh daryl f gates police quest open season uh we really should put the poster for that on the show notes because no, no, actually I, I own that as
0: a kid <laughs> like I, I liked the police quest franchise when i was growing up and i remember getting
3: that one uh and it was a little weird you're looking and at the, the creation of, the of Police Quest
4: IV, a new state-of-the-art crime-solving yeah. computer game from Sierra Online. And yes, that is retired Los Angeles police chief Daryl Gates. It's very important, I think, for people to see what a detective actually has to go through. And that's, I, I hope, what I'm bringing to this game, the reality of what detective work is all about.
3: Here's how it looks when it's all put together with
4: real actors. But according to its producer-director, the real star of Police Quest 4 is Daryl Gates. He's um, a lawman first and foremost. He's a gentleman. And uh, he certainly has added realism and thoughtfulness and accuracy to this game.
1: I actually have to say, I um, when we were making a video about the connection between the 1984 games and the 92 uprising, I watched Daryl Gates's intro to uh, to that video game, and we included some of it in the video because he was talking about his sort of CV as police chief and some of the um, the the like like situations that he oversaw, and he was mentioning all of these like. You know, he was mentioning the 92 Uprising and all of these other, like, intense violent situations. And he mentioned the '84 Olympics, among that, and it was kind of a weird dissonance, like, oh, even he recognizes that the '84 Olympics are up there in terms of like massive paramilitary, like, violence uh, operations.
0: No, it's interesting because with uh, with Michael Moore as the LAPD chief, he shot two people in his career. Uh, Daryl Gates signed off on both of those shootings, uh, and and I, I actually one last thing before we forget about the video game. I remember in that that intro. Uh, Daryl Gates very forcefully tells you that LAPD SWAT is a life-saving organization. Uh, And I remember even as a child being like, I don't think that's completely correct.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Police Quest SWAT 2. I'm Daryl Gates, retired chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. In my 43 years as a police officer and 15 years as chief, I've seen much of LA's post-war history. The Watts Riots, the riots of 1992, the Black Panther and SLA shootouts, the Marilyn Monroe investigation, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the 1984 Olympic Games, as well as literally hundreds of other shootouts and major investigations. Above all, I want to stress, SWAT is a life-preserving organization. If you train hard and follow procedures with precision, you will experience SWAT operation as close as you can without actually gearing up to hit the streets. Have fun, play smart, and remember, it's tough out there. Be very careful.
0: Uh, But I was hoping we could look a little bit at, uh, you know, how 92 was informed by 1984, like what sort of strands we saw carrying through, because it's, it's eight years removed, but it's the same sort of pressures that created the 92 uprising in our city.
1: Yeah, I think first of all, if you look at it, so eight years is not that long, and that's always been sort of like an interesting logical (laughs) fallacy that comes up when people talk about oh 84 was so great and it changed la for the better and it's like how how could the 1984 olympics have made la a city and been good for people if less than a decade later people were under such duress that they that this happened? you know if people were experiencing like such levels of oppression and outrage that you know that like if if 84 had actually been good for all angelinos you wouldn't have had an uprising Mm -hmm.
0: and we saw development in neighborhoods that were underserved um, that then became the hotbed of that uprising you would think that if these were a good thing for that neighborhood that people would not have been that upset or like there would have been more than just hey we built you a nice park with some tennis courts and neglected the rest of your neighborhood
2: yeah absolutely I I also think There was a connection in the response to the 1992 uprisings. Mayor Bradley tapped Peter Ubaroff then to lead Rebuild LA, which was the official response to the 92 riots. And the model was built on the Olympics. It said, look what we were able to do in 84 with this public-private partnership. Let's get the corporate leaders of Los Angeles to invest in the inner city. And this is going to be the panacea for all of our problems. Of course, it wasn't. Um, Corporations were much less willing to get involved in that kind of endeavor where there wasn't a clear profit to be generated, Um, and you didn't have, it wasn't uh, the kind of corporate leadership that Bradley was hoping um, it was going to be. There was also a similar effort to make 84 the model for dealing with homelessness. Let's get the corporate community involved. Let's generate money that way. Government is doesn't have enough funds to take care of this problem, which we know is a question of priorities, right? Um, but so, so there was a kind of repeated effort to go back to this idea that we pulled it off in 84. This will be our solution to all of these other problems, rather than seeing how 84 helped to generate some of those very problems. Right.
1: And it's also basic, like. It's basic math, right? You put like massive investment in policing, targeting of certain communities, just like expansion of the carceral state. Mass Putting small car-
3: businesses out of business. Right. Like in a local community or ac- the local economy.
1: Right. Exactly. So local economy in South L.A., unemployment, mass incarceration. Yeah. All of these things were spurred by the 84 Olympics. And so eight years of
0: that.
3: Yeah. Sometimes the cake takes a little longer to come out of the oven, but the ingredients were put together. You know,
0: I, I was gonna say it. It seems like uh, there's a lot of common threads coming from earlier Los Angeles, like Chavez Ravine and stuff, with urban redevelopment, homelessness sweeps, um, and we just kind of keep seeing these same tactics repackaged. And apparently, I'm just learning this by the same families, and that's a little bit a little bit strange. Um, how is that carrying through into this bid through '84? Like, what parallels are we seeing now? with that kind of weaponization of the bid?
2: One of the major things I see is the issue of homelessness and how that's being dealt with. So the same year that 1984, Los Angeles was declared the capital of of homelessness. Um, And in the lead up to the games, there were massive police sweeps of Skid Row, Pershing Square, other high-profile places where homeless or unhoused tended to congregate. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of pushback to that. There was lawsuits from the Inner City Law Center and other homeless activist groups. Um, but we're seeing the same thing now, where Garcetti is trying to say there are enough shelters built so that we can begin again to criminalize sleeping on the street. Um, and there's generally an effort to not really solve the problem, but just to get it out of view in advance of the games.
1: We heard this from one of our city council members when. Um, During the extremely brief period, (laughs) uh, essentially, I think eight or nine day period when our city council was considering the 2028 bid uh, and we went up in front of them. um, One council member who is a former police officer um, became very irate and said that the Olympics would be good for Los Angeles because they would, quote unquote, weed out poverty. And I not
3: solve poverty, but weed out poverty
1: yeah so i think there's a lot of transparency in terms of what the plan is to to deal with um you know to deal with problems that the the bid committee the city council the mayor the ioc would would see as being counterproductive to the um to the olympic plan of essentially like presenting a certain image of la uh to the world if you look at the 20 uh 2024 bid package um and i think i've <laughs> i will mention this uh, in every episode that i appear on there is no 2028 bid package or budget that does not exist um but if you look at the 2024 bid package you know it's a lot of like idealized renderings and sunset colors and the way they talk about Los Angeles basically make it sound like the sanitized version of Silicon Valley. Um, I did a search at one point. The words innovation and technology appear like 60 times. um, Homeless, homelessness, (laughs) unhoused, housing, zero times. Like you could read this bid package and never know that L.A. is in one of the worst affordable housing and homelessness crises in its
3: history and it just seems like this you know it just kind of keeps going in cycles like you were saying you know same actors same pitch same you know for lack of a better phrase line of bullshit right um and 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 like you know as am was saying earlier with like 32 you know This notion that like what business does a city have hosting a games like this when, you know, the economic situation is so bad and then you look at where we're at right now in 2018 with, you know, the housing affordability crisis and, you know, massive disparities in in wealth and income inequality and, um, you know, the fact that there's 53,000, you know, people sleeping on the sidewalks of of, uh, uh, Los Angeles County every night when we have, you know, 200,000 plus vacant uh, apartments in the county. You know, it just—it's just you know, shocking that that you know, the the grift of neoliberal capitalism is still so strong that like they can keep selling us this same. You know the same garbage every you know you know fifty years, thirty years or whatever and and using it to in en- enrich their own interests um and and you know and it also you know kind of gets to the this this notion of like you know continuing to hammer home the public private partnership right that like this brand of neoliberal capitalism like this is the way that we're gonna solve these problems, like this is how we're gonna solve homelessness, like this is how we're gonna solve you know x, y, or z. Um, and, and in so many ways, the, the need for those things to exist is because of, you know, uh, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the more that you undercut, you know, these public social services, the more you need these, you know, private corporate actors to step in and quote unquote solve the problem when really their only interest, only interest in the matter is, you know, kind of enriching themselves, right. And making it seem like they're, they're necessary. And, you know, you can see it right on the LA 84 is, um, uh, webpage, you know, they they brag about um, being able to uh, uh, you know hire a bunch of like teachers and coaches for uh, uh, schools because LAUSD cut the budget. Well, it's like, well, the problem is that LAUSD needs a bigger budget. It's not <laughs> right, that we yeah, need clearly. the LA84 Foundation to save the day.
1: Right, and it's like Mayor Garcetti talks about you know how LA84 provide first of all just like cutting into the mythology of, like, LA84 granted all this access to youth sports. How many times in the last few years has LAUSD been sued for not providing adequate physical education to its students, right? Um, And then he talks about now how LA84 is going to expand that further, and it's like, first of all, it failed the first time. LA84 has not created universal access to sports for children in Los Angeles. And then second of all, it's like, if that were really your goal, um, why not use your power as the mayor of Los Angeles? And um, I forget exactly what his like formal role is on the board of the LAUSD. But he obviously he has one and he has, you know, a certain amount of influence and oversight. Uh, why not do it through that? And we wouldn't need to wait 10 years and we wouldn't need to you know go through this boondoggle. We could if we really wanted to expand universal access to youth sports we could do that, like as Caitlin mentioned, it's not a question of resources, it's a question of priorities and political will. Mm-hmm. And I'll add that too about housing and just to make a connection back to the 32 games. Um, so another thing that the 32 games were sort of known for, were they were the first games to be televised and they were the first games to have an Olympic village, to have an athlete's village. Uh, and just looking at that and it's sort of interesting, you know, as Steve was talking about LA's homelessness crisis, uh, yeah it's curious that um when pressed la's leaders and the bid committee and all of these private resources can come up with a way to to host and you know house thousands of athletes and journalists too there's a media village as well they can create housing uh but when you know when it comes to housing la's residents who have been displaced suddenly becomes a lot trickier
0: yeah, well, and it, all, it it seems like, you know, if we could just get the boring company to to drill some tunnels, you know, we could totally... No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But it seems like 2028 is really lining up to be a redux of 1984, and that leaves kind of a bad taste in my mouth at this point in time. Um, what do you guys see as the most dangerous trends coming out of this kind of parallel between the last game and this game?
3: Uh, it's, t- it's hard to pick, right? Like, it's a smorgasbord of bad uh, things to eat. Um, you know... Uh, it's it's really hard to say, because I mean, like, you know, the the potential for, you know, the security apparatus getting, you know, magnified and and and, you know, as we said before, you know, turned against the people of the of the city is 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 terrifying. Uh, we'll do a deeper dive into um, some of that police militarization stuff when we talk about uh, immigration in a later episode. Um, but um, so, I mean, that's that's a particular concern for me as somebody who, you know, uh, identifies as an abolitionist and, and you know, uh, thinks that we should be investing in programs of social uplift as opposed to uh, ways to surveil and uh, uh, kill <laughs> uh, everyday people. Um, but, you know, I think if you if you had to put like a, um, a more. Just vulnerable populations, like every vulnerable population in Los Angeles becomes that much more vulnerable when you have an Olympic Games coming to town, whether it's people experiencing homelessness, whether it's, you know, uh, undocumented immigrants or their families, um, you know, whether it's, you know, people who are uh, uh, wrongly on a gang database because they have the wrong skin color and hung out with the wrong people on the wrong street corner, wearing the wrong clothes. I mean, all of those people are at such extreme danger of. You know suffering uh, uh, you know an accelerated uh, uh, negative fate right um, which is to say nothing of people who are like just living in their apartments and are housing insecure you know I don't know how many of these families are like desperate for their kid to get swim lessons when like they're just trying to put food on the table
1: mm. um, to that and to I'll say um I, I live in Boyle Heights. Um, I have been, now that it's brutally hot in Los Angeles, I've started swimming again. There are two like state-of-the-art Olympic-sized swimming pools within walking distance of my house. There's free tennis courts. I'm very grateful for access to those things, but um, I would say that what my community needs more than anything is not a third and fourth swimming pool uh it's you know it's rent control um it's police abolition uh it's yeah the, these are not the things that los angeles is desperate for our needs
0: but on that subject so one of the things that garcetti's really tried to to sell as part of this bid is his 20 by 20 or 28 by 28 sorry where he's promising like large public works programs, uh, uh, large uh, mass transit programs. What is the linkage there? Like, why don't we get those things without an Olympic bid? Because we still need trains.
3: I mean, in some sense, we kind of like already were, right? I mean, uh, a lot of the transit expansion that's happening right now in Los Angeles was funded by two voter passed uh, measures, Measure M and Measure R. So that money was already you know, going to exist um, for expanding transit in Los Angeles. Um, you know, but as uh, Caitlin mentioned earlier, a lot of times it's a question of priority. Right. Um, so right now they're prioritizing uh, expanding the Purple Line, uh, which is a subway that effectively runs under Wilshire Boulevard, which is already served by one of the most commonly ridden and heavily populated uh, uh, bus lines in Los Angeles. but whatever let's expand the purple line to westwood because westwood would be the termination point of that and that just conveniently happens to be where the uh, olympic village would be for the athletes as pitched in the bid uh, to to house the athletes at ucla to say nothing of where the students go during the summertime um and then uh, the Crenshaw LAX connector, um, which you know would be a big pitch for them as uh, something to move folks who were flying into LAX to you know access the games, and you know they really want to push this to be like a transit prioritized games, right? That like I think they have made some absurd claim in the bid book about how like every single like athlete will travel only by metro as part of the the games, which you know is a dubious claim at best and basically impossible to prove. But to go back to the question of priority, um, you know, you have a, a transit corridor like the Vermont Transit Corridor, which, you know, is badly in need of, you know, expansion um, and is one of, is again one of the most highly served transit corridors, um, particularly for people who tend to tra- take transit, which are people that can't afford cars, you know, people who are low income. Um, that's the one that like really needs it. Right. It's like one of the heaviest uh, traffic corridors and it's like getting lower priority. right? Um, So they're expanding all these transit projects and, you know, they're lobbying President Trump for accelerated federal funds that were already being guaranteed, but we just want to get them now. Um, So, you know, they're like a lot of these projects would be happening regardless of the Olympics. Um, You know, it's just kind of a sense of how they're prioritized now is being filtered by that.
1: I think we also always need to be conscientious when we're thinking about transit development in Los Angeles, about transit-oriented development and displacement, um, and the fact that Metro Los Angeles is one of the biggest landowners in Los Angeles, and these projects that, you know, depending on who is leading the charge on them um, can also be used as an opportunity for real estate speculation, accelerated gentrification, and displacement of the same communities that should, in theory, be benefiting from them.
2: Yeah, I think it's part of our sort of neoliberal mindset that we look to these things like the Olympics, like having Amazon headquarter in your city um, to solve your problems, uh, or to build needed infrastructure um, to take care of what should be the priorities of government. Um, and I think if we look actually at the history of those kinds of projects, they don't tend to serve all of the residents of a community and they tend to fuel practices of speculation and gentrification and displace people and so it's kind of remarkable that you can have it happen time and time again um, and yet we still look to that next opportunity as the thing that's going to save the city. It's the monorail. Exactly all goes back to the Simpsons.
4: You know a town with money is a little like the mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows how he got it, and danged if he knows how to use it. Just tell us your idea, and we'll vote for it. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. Marie, What's it called? Marie, Once again.
2: Marie, Marie. But street's still all cracked and broken. Sorry, Mom. The mother's spoken.
4: Mono. Don't And
0: as you as y'all have described the process of how we kind of got the bid and how the city council sort of came to support it, it seems like there's a dearth of democracy there. Like no one actually took the pulse of the city, talked to the regular people on the street. I wanted to, to ask like, is that a misperception on my part? And if it's not, what are we trying to do to bring more transparency to this process?
3: Well, I mean, I'd say this this podcast in and of itself is a is a place where we're trying to bring more transparency to the process. I mean, we've seen, unfortunately, you know, with the carving out of the um the media the local media landscape with you know the 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 death of la weekly which is you know now just like a zombie rag for oc trump supporting billionaires um you know the la times moving to el segundo and like not really having much in the way of like local reporting um you know kpcc you know basically breathlessly acting as a booster for the bid i mean there just hasn't been any kind of like real mainstream critical analysis of you know some of these things that are you know that we're not making this stuff up like it is this is historically borne out to be a pattern of how the Olympic Games operate both in Los Angeles history and just the game the history of the games all over the world um, and so yeah I mean like doing this kind of stuff trying to push our our message and trying to hold the media accountable for not holding the bid accountable um, and and yeah you know it's something that that you know some of our organizers have said we'll talk to anybody any time uh, you know about this stuff if they're willing to listen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, something else we're working on and have sort of um, something that we've been dealing with since we started this campaign is, as Steve mentioned, the the kind of uh, death rattle of independent media and local media, um, which is something that we really appreciate Ground Game and Knock for, for taking up the mantle of. I mean, it's it's really huge to have um, to be able to work with entities that are in no way connected to uh, or profiting from the games because it's increasingly hard to, to find um, or any of its players. Uh, and something that we had learned. So we've been in contact with other opposition movements since we started and since before we started. And one of the things that they told us was that um, it was really effective to be able to show through uh, media polling that public opinion for the Olympics was low, and particularly that it was dropping as people learned more about the games. And that's something we heard consistently. And so they were just like, oh, just keep track of the local polling that's happening and media polling. There has been zero polling in Los Angeles. Not a single outlet has done a poll or a survey. Um, At the time, something that drove me crazy, and I have a background in market research, um, so this drove me crazy both as an organizer and in my sort of like professional capacity. that a lot of journalists were saying, you know, the the uh, 2024 bid is notable for its public support, widespread well, public support. They'd say things like. You know, polls have shown that as many as 88% of people support the games, and they sort of would frame it as if, like, that was just the highest of the many polls, as opposed to saying this one poll commissioned by the bid committee two years ago (laughs) shows with, like, no other information, shows this. And so um, we're basically in the process of building out our own um our own online polling and surveying uh which you know we recognize is not a substitute for like an independent media poll or academic survey um but we're hoping can sort of can start to create the conversation around why we need that and why we need to be talking to people Um, we've also taken issue with the fact that there was not community outreach done for the 2024 bid there has been uh, again, no outreach done for the 2028 bid because the 2028 bid sort of came up eight days before it was voted on by city council and there is no bid package. So so any conversations that happened, period, were about 2024 and not 2028. Uh, and we also, when we first started looking into it, noted that all of the conversations that were held were not well publicized, um, were not generally accessible to the people that will be most impacted. They were very much geared at kind of the business community. I think there were five meetings that took place in Santa Monica. Santa Monica is not an intended or named host of any event. So there were more quote-unquote community outreach meetings held in Santa Monica than anywhere else. There was the, the meeting, the community outreach meeting that took place in City Council District 14, which is my district, was hosted and planned by d lank which uh, folks in LA will know or maybe remember from the Skid Row Neighborhood Council debacle is like an intensely anti homeless, um, you know, business community led neighborhood council. Um, That's so, the
3: downtown LA Neighborhood Council for those who aren't familiar.
1: Right, exactly. So it's, so, you know, that and. A lot of them were like Chamber of Commerce meetings and they were meetings that you had to pay to go to there. As far as we know, we haven't been able to confirm or deny this, but nobody has proved to the contrary. There was no interpretation or translation at any of these meetings. Um, So, yeah, as far as we can tell, people in L.A. just don't know about the Olympics. When we first started, when we first started going out and talking to different groups and different communities about the Olympics, a lot of people didn't even realize that it was happening. Um, People, you know, uh, people assumed that we might be voting on it. L.A. votes on a lot of things. Um, There is no voting planned around the Olympics. I think that's another legacy from 84, too, because um, Measure N, which was the charter amendment that Steve mentioned earlier about the taxpayer guarantee was something that was on the ballot. So people in 84 didn't vote about whether or not to bid for the Olympics or host the Olympics, but they did vote on the taxpayer guarantee. And and to remove that, they basically say, like, we will only host this if there is no taxpayer guarantee. so I think it's that's reasonable for a lot of people to assume, right? You think about all the things we vote on in L.A. We voted recently, I think in the 2016 election, we voted about, you know, uh, what to do with the 10 cents from the pla- that they charge us for the plastic bags at the grocery stores. We voted about what adult film actors can do with their bodies. We vote on all kinds of things. Um, this is an event that will shape our city for decades to come. It's reasonable to assume that you know it's it's reasonable for people to assume that this wouldn't happen without citizens and residents of LA to you know vote on it in some capacity and so i think a lot of people don't really realize where we're at in the bidding process just because of that
3: and again, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of emblematic of how, like, you know, the neoliberal capitalist order that we're in right now effectively means that you're governed by people who are not elected. You know, you're governed by, uh, you know, the boards of various uh, massive multinational corporations. Um, and when you have something like, you know, the Olympics coming to town, this is this thing that is massively transformative for the city. And, you know, sure, some of our elected officials are involved in some of the projects and implementation and planning and whatnot. But like, ultimately the la 2028 organizing committee is a private body that is run by people who are not accountable to the city of los angeles and its citizens and they are effectively able to remake the city with their own vision that we don't get to decide on uh and you know i think us as organizers in the city have a very different vision for what the city could and should be um and you know it's really unfortunate that uh, um, that they're getting priority uh, to to make the city in their own image.
1: I think it's important to note that a lot of those figures on the bid committee too are also um, people who have a storied history of over (laughs) you know of marginalized people and like working people what
3: do you mean bob Iger treats his employees extremely well right so (laughs) bob
1: Iger, the chair who runs the disney corporation right and like he's one of the wealthiest people on the planet um disney workers recently you know protested because many of them like can't afford food or shelter living Um, in their
4: cars
1: right exactly yeah they're like some of the most exploited workers in the world uh Despite the fact that this is like one of the most profitable companies in the world. So Bob Iger, one of the the leaders of the bid committee, um, Gene Sykes of Goldman Sachs, (laughs) you know, architects of the 2008 financial crisis. And yeah, these are these are people who have absolutely no interest or motive to even consider the well-being of anyone who's not part of the ruling class
0: so uh, unpopular is popular undemocratic is democratic this seems very in line with 1984 uh, this has been a very enlightening kind of trip through how a lot of the things that we deal with in modern LA started a couple of decades ago and have only gotten worse and are fed by the same private interest so I want to thank you all very much for uh, for coming by any last thoughts on 1984 before we go I,
3: rest, think among, rest in, nope, I was going to say rest in power bomber. Yeah, yeah well, yeah.
2: <laughs> obviously. I mean, yeah, I think among supporters of 84, there's this, or sorry, supporters of 2028, 20, there's this sense that like we can replicate the successes of 84. I think it's far more dangerous that we're going to replicate the failures. But the problem is that people don't know that story. They don't know what those failures were. So um, I think that's the important part of having this podcast.
0: To learn more and get involved, Please visit nolympicsla.com and knock.la. The IOC doesn't
4: care about you.